Scripture reading comes from the book of Song of Psalms, chapter 5 and chapter 8. She, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I have washed my feet, must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved has left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I remember uh, it was like yesterday. My wife Hannah and I were moving into the city, and uh, so we were seemingly on Craigslist or Street Easy every day trying to find the perfect uh, studio for ourselves. And I remember on more than one occasion, I would shout out, Hannah, this apartment looks huge, or Hannah, this apartment looks so modern, only to actually visit the apartment and be severely, severely disappointed at how small it was but due to the wide angle picture, we were deceived. And even though the bathroom was renovated, it was to the ancient neglect of everything else. And at a very early stage in our city life, we learned that uh, when it comes to apartment hunting, looks can be very, very deceiving. And you know what? The same also applies to marriage. I realize that when you're single, marriage looks like the greenest grass you have ever seen on the other side. But talk to anyone that is married, and they will tell you that while the grass is green, there are patches of yellowish-brown grass littered everywhere. Marriage is wonderful, but it's also very hard, and it's also very challenging. This is one of the reasons why at our church we do premarital counseling, and not only premarital counseling, but pre-engagement counseling when you're on the cusp of engagement. And the reason why we do this is because what we want to do is to dismantle one by one any unrealistic expectations that a couple might have. But we not only do premarital counseling, but we also do a six-month post-wedding counseling session uh, as well. And the reason why we do this six-month post-wedding session is because long after the fairy tale wedding is over and the Instagram-worthy honeymoon to Santorini is finished and you're returning home to the regular rhythms and patterns of life, as you return home, there is something crouching and waiting for, the, for these newlyweds. And what is crouching and waiting for these newlyweds is conflict. Conflict happens not only in the worst of marriages, but conflict also happens in the best of marriages. 
Whoever you marry is going to severely, severely disappoint you. And you know what? You are going to severely, severely disappoint them as well. And it was no different for this couple that we have been journeying with for the past few weeks. Uh, last week, Pastor Gene talked about their epic wedding and honeymoon. And today, we get to talk about their first marital conflict, which ironically takes place in the bedroom. And I say ironically because it was just one chapter ago where all they ever talk about is sex and love and how they can't keep their hands off one another. And today, we're talking about a conflict that actually happens uh, right here uh, in the bedroom. After the highs of the wedding and the honeymoon are over, it doesn't take very long for disappointment to set in. It doesn't take long for questions to begin to surface where we begin to say, did I make a mistake? Did I marry the wrong person? Is this what I'm stuck with for the rest of my life? Can anyone help me? And it wasn't different for this couple here. And so take a look with me at verse two. And she says, I slept but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. If you're joining us for the first time uh, today, I just want to set the scene. Uh, they've, uh, this couple has uh, finished their wedding and their honeymoon, and right now the wife is having a dream. So this isn't real life but it's a dream, and in the dream, her husband is returning home late at night, and we know that it's late at night because his head is drenched with the morning dew. And we don't know if it was a day-long business trip or maybe a week-long business trip, but he is uh, arriving home very, very late. And if you can place yourself in the husband's shoes, I mean, after a very long day at work or perhaps a week-long business trip, if we can just place ourselves in the the husband's shoes for a moment, he's probably thinking how great it would be to actually return home and what home would be like. Maybe, maybe just thinking about the aromatic smell of leftover dinner that his wife maybe made for him. Maybe the thought of actually sleeping on his own bed versus a hotel bed. And just returning home to his brand new wife. And so he's thinking about all of these things and possibly even making love. And so he strategically begins the conversation in verse two by using four compliments of his new wife. He calls her his sister, his darling, his dove, and his flawless one. Now just try complimenting your wife with four compliments in a row, and I know that for my wife, she's not gonna be thinking, oh babe, that's so sweet. You know what she's gonna be thinking? What do you want? <laughs> and he indeed wants uh, something, because in this passage, in verse two, he says, open to me. And what he's talking about is not a door, but what he's talking about is her body. He wants her body open to him so that they can have sex. But read with me verse three, her response. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Now, believe it or not, this is not the first time this kind of conversation has happened before. Sometimes when you're single, uh, 
there's a temptation to think that when you get married that all you're gonna do is have sex. But the truth of the matter is conversations like this are far more normal than abnormal, far more common uh, than uncommon. And from her perspective, it's like 1 a.m. <laughs> I'm already showered, I put my PJs on. I brush my teeth, which you complimented me on uh, a chapter ago. Um, I'm tired. And you know what, you haven't been home all day. I've been home all by myself. And now you just wanna have sex. And I think she brings up a good point because sometimes from a male perspective, the way that we spell love oftentimes is S-E-X. But for her, love was spelled T-I-M-E. And you quite frankly haven't given me any time today. But from his perspective, from his perspective, he spent a long day at work, perhaps a long week at work. He's returning home. He's been alone on his business trip. He misses his wife and he wants to make love to her. And so his perspective is just as understandable. Now the irony is that just one chapter ago, they couldn't keep their hands off one another. In fact, even their friends say, eat and drink your fill of love. And yet when we arrive in this chapter, what we see is their very first marital conflict. For our premarital counseling, uh, the book that we use is a book called What Did You Expect by the author Paul Tripp. And you don't have to read the book to understand what this book could potentially be about, what did you expect. And one of the things that Paul Tripp says, who is a preeminent counselor, he says that the number one problem, the number one problem that married couples have when they get married is unrealistic expectations where he expects this and she expects this. And in this particular scenario, what he expected and what he wanted was to have sex. But for her, she had very, expectation, she had very different expectations and wants. And because their expectation levels did not align in sync, what they had was conflict. Uh, I remember uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author here, he was sharing a story about when he first got married to his wife, Kathy, and he returned home from a long day of work, and uh, she was there, and so he said, uh, honey, where's dinner? And she was like, I don't know. <laughs> he was like, what do you mean, where's dinner? And she was like, I don't know. And for Kathy, from her perspective, her dad was the one that always cooked dinner. Her mom never cooked dinner. But from Tim's perspective, I've been gone all day at work. This is what you should do to carry your, your weight. And so they had very different expectations. And as a result of that, because their expectation levels were very different, what was born was conflict. But here's the thing about this husband. He doesn't take no for an answer and he perseveres. And so read with me verses four through six. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with the flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. If you take a look with me again at verse four, more likely than not, what his hand is in reference to is his most intimate part. 
And soon enough, she herself is aroused as well. But by the time she arises just like that, poof, he's gone. Nowhere to be found. It's too late. And I think a part of the reason why this conflict emerges is because they are both at fault. For starters, with the husband, he is at fault because, the husband is at fault because he takes something very, very personally that was impersonal. He's very thin-skinned. He's overly sensitive. And for those of you who might be a little bit like this, uh, one of the things that helps is having the other person's perspective. So I want you to imagine for a moment the husband is here for a counseling session with all of us. And he's uh, saying that he wants to make love to his wife, but she doesn't want to because he's missed her all the time and she's only misses occasionally. And so they have this conflict. And so he's here with us. And I think as counselors, one of the things that we ought to say to him is this. This is helpful, particularly if you take things very personally when something is very impersonal. One of the things that we ought to say to him if he's in our counseling session right now is this. Do you think, do you think that your wife woke up this morning preemptively thinking, I'm gonna take a shower. I'm gonna put on my PJs. I'm gonna brush all of my teeth right before he gets home so that when he does come home, I can say I'm all washed up and we don't have to have sex. Do you think that's what she did? Chances are people are not that calculating. Chances are that at the top of her agenda that morning wasn't to, pre, in a premeditated fashion, do these things to you just so that she could stick it to you. And hopefully if the husband is here, the, a light bulb will go off and he will understand that what she did was not very personal, it was very impersonal. She's tired. She doesn't want to stick it to him. She's simply exhausted. But the husband failed to see this, which is why he simply takes off. But the husband is not only at fault for taking something very personally, something that was impersonal, but the wife is at fault as well. Because at this point, she is not only thinking about, she is not thinking about his needs at all, but instead she is thinking about her own needs. And when a couple, when you have a couple and one person is thinking about their own needs and the other person is thinking about their own needs, what you have is the birth of conflict. If I can give you a sneak peek into the life of my own marriage, anytime Hannah and I have had conflict is because we were both looking out for our own interests. And so just to give you a sneak peek at some of the things that take place in the Chong household, I have two girls. Uh, Logan and Hayden. Logan is three and a half and uh, Hayden is one and a half. I watched Logan uh, prior to sending her to daycare for 18 months straight myself. I was a stay-at-home father and for Hayden I watched her for 15 months. Now for some of you that might not mean anything uh, but if you're a parent you very much understand that that is like death <laughs> by a thousand paper cuts. And so I was a uh, Forbes magazine top 10 hardest jobs you may have heard this before at the top of the CEO is number nine. You know what number one is? The number one hardest job in the world, stay-at-home parent. And I did that twice before sending them off to daycare. But I, know I not only had the hardest job in the world, but I had the fifth hardest job in the world, which was a spiritual leader, a rabbi, priest, pastor. And so you combine the fifth hardest job with the first hardest job in the world, and you're running on fumes. And so every day, 
At 5.25 p.m. when Hannah would come home from work, I would pick up Logan or Hayden like Simba and give her right to Hannah and basically say, now it's your turn. I did my part, now you do your part. Failing to realize that she had just come home from a long day of work herself. But at that point, I was only thinking about myself, my needs, the weight I'm carrying, neglecting her needs, her wants, and the struggles that she had for the day. And in this particular case, the husband, uh, the wife, is not only not, is neglecting to think about her husband and only thinking about her own. I want to read you a, a quote on the first page of your bulletin from uh, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And Keller writes, in Western culture today, you decide to get married because you feel an attraction to the other person. But a year or two later, three things usually happen. First, you begin to find out how selfish this wonderful person is. Second, you discover that the wonderful person has been going through a similar experience, and he or she begins to tell you how selfish you are. And third, though you acknowledge it in part, you conclude that your spouse's selfishness is more problematic than your own. This is especially true if you feel that you've had a hard life and have experienced a lot of hurt. The woundedness makes us minimize our own selfishness, and that's the point at which many married couples arrive after a relatively brief period of time. So what do you do then? So what do you do? Well, I think the key to having a successful relationship is this. The key is when both people treat their own selfishness as the main problem in the relationship and not the other person's. When both people treat their own selfishness as the main problem, you can have a marriage or relationship that not only survives but thrives. When one person treats their own selfishness as the main problem but the other person doesn't, what you're going to have is abuse. When neither of you consider your own selfishness as the main problem, your marriage or relationship is toast. But when both of you treat your own self-centeredness, self-interest, and selfishness as the main problem, when both of you do that, you can have a marriage that thrives. And here the woman is starting to do that. And one of the, one of the ways that we can treat uh, our own selfishness as, a, uh, as the main problem is when we're considering the needs of the other person. You know, when you get married, the two, the two of you become one flesh. And so it's your responsibility to take care of the other person. And as you become one flesh, and as you belong to one another now, one of the ways that you can serve the other person is by realizing that even my body, it doesn't belong to me. My body belongs to God, and my body also belongs to the other person. My body doesn't just belong to me. I wanna read you a passage. Uh, it's not in your bulletin from 1 Corinthians 7, verse four, and it says, the wife, does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Your bodies now belong to one another. It doesn't just belong to you. Now, of course, hear me when I say this, there has to be a balance. There are times where you can and you should say, 
Not tonight, dear. And so whether it's because you've had a long, stressful day at work, you have a deadline to meet, you're sick, you're pregnant, whatever the reason might be, there are times where you can and you should say, not tonight, dear. But there are also times where you should say, I'm not in the mood right now, but because I know you are, okay. Because your body doesn't just belong to you, it also belongs to your spouse. And if you can meet the needs of your spouse, you should do so without going to either or extreme. Joe B. Martin, uh, this is also not in your bulletin, he says, it is an extremely risky proposition for a husband to reach out to his wife or for a wife to reach out to her husband. It's a very risky proposition. The more he or she gets their hands slapped, they will go from a strong pursuit to a T-Rex arm to it not being worth the rejection at all. Sex is always a very risky proposition because you never know how the outcome is going to be. But love is not just a heart that looks at yourself, but love is a heart that moves away from the self towards the other person. And here in this story, the wife's heart is now moving away from herself toward her husband uh, more and more as she seeks to reconcile with him and she seeks to find him. And I love this part of the narrative because oftentimes as singles, and hear me when I say this, oftentimes as singles, you think that the two hot buzzwords for a successful relationship are the two C's, chemistry and compatibility. That's what you're primarily looking for in a date, chemistry and compatibility. But hear me when I say this, the success of a relationship isn't contingent upon how much chemistry you have nor how compatible you are. Rather, the success of a relationship is contingent upon not how compatible you are so much as how you deal with your incompatibilities. When two sinners say, I do, conflict is inevitable. So I don't care if both of you are foodies and you like to travel, you both like sports center, I don't care. What I'm more interested in is how you deal with your incompatibilities. For example, are you a quick forgiver? Are you quick to say, I'm sorry? Do you get hyper defensive and channel in your inner defensive lawyer all the time or your prosecution attorney? Are you the type of person that has a terabyte up here and you remember everything the other person did and you use it as a weapon against the other person. Remember you did this last week? You always do this. How good are you at dealing with incompatibility? That is a better, uh, uh, better way of gauging whether how successful you will be uh, in another relationship with the other person. And here, the woman in verse six, if I can read it for us, wants to reconcile after the conflict that she has. And in verse six, she says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The fact that the woman says that her heart sank is a language of contrition. It is language of repentance. 
She is truly, truly sorry at what she did. And I love this because her response isn't, what's his problem? Like, doesn't he know how exhausted I am? Her response isn't to get defensive. She doesn't use the victim narrative that we're all so great at using, where we're always the one that is victimized and it's everyone else's fault, where we're blame shifting every time. But she is calling out herself, saying that she messed up, which is why her heart sinks at what took place. The three hardest words in the English language are not I love you, but I am sorry. And here she is saying that she is truly, truly sorry. I do want to read a second quote for us from, uh, in your bulletin from Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. And Thomas says, just when we are most eager to make ourselves understood, we must strive to understand. Just when we seek to air our grievances, we must labor to comprehend another's hurt. Just when we want to point out the fallacies and abusive behavior of someone else, we must ruthlessly evaluate our own offensive attitudes and behaviors. What if your husband's or wife's faults are God's tools to shape you? What if the very thing that bugs you about your man or woman constitutes God's plan to teach you something new? Are you willing to accept that your marriage makeover, the process of moving a man or a woman, might begin with you? You know, couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. And here, the wife wants to repent, which is why she does three things. She not only experiences uh, remorse and regret over what she does, but she also opens the door, she calls out for him, and she looks for him as well. But even though she calls out for him and she looks for her man, she doesn't find him. And so in many ways, this dream is like a nightmare because she searches and searches for him, only he has nowhere to be found. Now fortunately, this was just a dream because in real life, we know how the poem ends. And the poem ends with them living happily ever after. And he is very much present. He hasn't gone anywhere. And at the end of the poem, they celebrate the power of their love for one another. If I can read for us the last two verses of our text in verse six and seven, it says this. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as a grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. The power of love. You know, when uh, my wife Hannah and I were first dating, uh, at the time I lived in these uh, suburbs of Philadelphia where I was uh, finishing, starting a program, and she lived in northern New Jersey. Uh, I didn't have a car, and so the only way I could get to Jersey was when my friend picked me up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. <clears throat> he would drive me 10 minutes to a train station where I would wait another 10 minutes for the train, and then the train would go 40 minutes to downtown Philadelphia where I would wait for another 30 to 40 minutes to catch a bolt bus or a mega bus all the way up to New York City, which would sometimes take anywhere between two to three and a half hours depending on traffic and the weather. After I got dropped off in the city, I would walk to Port Authority where I would wait again 20 minutes for a bus to Jersey 
And then I would take a 30-minute bus ride to an hour and a half, depending on traffic and the weather again, to go to northern Jersey. And then from northern Jersey, I would walk to her home. That was one way <laughs> just to be with her. And then I would have to do the exact same thing to get all the way back. <laughs> just thinking about that makes me exhausted. You know, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Christianity, do you know what the gospel, the good news is all about? It's not about how God went from Philadelphia to New York to New Jersey, but the gospel story, the heart of Christianity is about how God came all the way from heaven to earth. And the reason why he traversed the cosmos was simply to be with you. And not only to simply be with you, and be near you, but also to die for you. Where Jesus doesn't withhold his body from us, but he willingly gives up his naked body on a cross. Now why in the world would he do this? It's for our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our sins, our myopic view of other people. It's because when he hung on the cross, he didn't die for us because he lo we look so lovely, but quite the contrary, because we look so unattractive because of our sins. Yet he gladly stayed on the cross, giving up his body for us because he loved us so much. Many of you have probably read the book Life of Pi or have seen the movie Life of Pi, and it's about a young Indian boy who has spiritual interests, and I I want to close with this final quote from the book, Life of Pi. And Pi, keep in mind again, is on the spiritual journey to find the truth and meaning of life. And he's having a conversation with Father Martin. And he says, I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped and naked, whipped and mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans, to boot. I'd never heard of a Hindu god dying. Mortals did, by the thousands and millions. That's what they were there for. Matter too fell away. But divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. It was wrong of the Christian god to let his avatar die. That is tantamount to letting a part of himself die. For if the sun is to die, it cannot be fake. The death of the sun must be real. But once a dead god, always a dead god even resurrected. The son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful, spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. And if you have not experienced the love of God today, I do want you to know that he does love you. And the proof of that is the cross, where he gave up his naked body for you. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes familiarity can breed apathy. And for those of us who have heard this story a thousand times, uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would recapture our imaginations. And for those of us who are hearing this for the first time, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would also capture our imaginations 
uh, with a tremendous, unfathomable love for us. Uh, because love is not only as strong as death, but it is much stronger than death. And you've proven that on the cross and in the empty grave for us. And for that, we just want to say we love you too. In your name I pray, amen.